Hello, and welcome to a live special recording of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. Thank you very much to those of you that are joining us in real time, as well as those of you who are joining in to uh, catch us later. This is a special edition of Brussels Sprouts in that we're recording live, or I should say we have a virtual audience listening in real time. Um, and that means that Brussels Sprouts listeners and our live audience have the opportunity to play host, and you can pose your own questions to our guests and hear their questions included in our podcast recording. So all you avid Brussels Sprouts listeners out there, I hope you've brought your questions. Um, if you do want to pose your question, and I hope that you do, uh, you can do so at cnas.org uh, forward slash live by scrolling down to the chat box. And please do identify yourself when posing your question so we can recognize you on the podcast. Uh, and with that, we'll turn to today's uh, episode, which is focused on Russia-China relations one year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Although Beijing has sought to politically distance itself from the Kremlin for fear of international blowback, especially from Europe, China has been a critical lifeline for Russia. A vocal U.S. warnings that China is contemplating providing lethal assistance to Russia have only added fodder to concerns about the consequences of their deepening partnership. And so to provide insight into the evolving Russia-China partnership, and in particular, the state of their bilateral defense cooperation and the challenges it presents to the U.S. and its allies, we've convened a leading group of experts on the subject for this next hour's discussion. So without further ado, I'll very quickly introduce our stamp stellar panel. Uh, we're joined first by Bonnie Glazer. Uh, she is the Managing Director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Uh, we're joined by Dmitry Gorenberg, who is Senior Research Scientist in the Russia Studies Program at CNA, uh, by Richard Weiss, uh, who is a Senior Fellow and the Director of the Center for Political Military Analysis at the Hudson Institute. He also had a book out last year on this topic, Russia-China Relations, uh, titled The New Alignment. So if you haven't read it, check it out. And finally, um, Yusuke Anami, who is Professor of Modern Chinese Political History and Contemporary Politics at Tohoku University. Um, awesome. Okay, this is quite a group. And Bonnie, I'm gonna turn to you first, just to set the stage. <clears throat> And uh, you know, tell us how you would describe where we are in terms of Russia-China relations and the view from Beijing. You know, I think we've heard many people speculating that China doesn't want to be on the losing side, that they don't want to back a loser in Russia, or that somehow Russia's dismal performance here has diminished its value as a partner for China. Um, so let us know. You know, how how do you see things, and how does Beijing think about the value of Russia now as a partner? Well, thank you again, Andrea and Jim, for having me on Brussels Sprouts again. Um, I think uh, that the China-Russia relationship remains very important to Xi Jinping um, and to China overall. Uh, there continue to be some gripes in the system. We can still talk to some scholars in China who think that uh, it is not in China's interest to get so close to Moscow. But I don't think that these people are having an impact on policy. Uh, I think that uh, there are many aspects of Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow that are very noteworthy. Uh, and I want to mention one in particular, that as Xi Jinping was departing and he said farewell to <clears throat> Putin, uh, he cited his oft-stated uh, uh, phrase that uh, the changes unseen in a century um, uh, which uh, usually he talks about uh, opportunities and challenges, and he has referred to this phrase over the last couple of years. But he said these uh, changes unseen in a century, we are driving them together. And I thought that was quite note noteworthy. And I think that does suggest that uh, Xi Jinping attaches importance to issues like cooperation with Moscow to reduce the role of the U.S. dollar in the international financial system um, and to expand BRICS, uh, which they are working on together. Uh, so this is of course about um, uh, weakening US influence and, and, and US alliances. Uh, so I, I think that, that's that, that that relationship, and this was the 40th meeting uh, between the two leaders since uh, Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, 
is extremely important. That said, there was no mention in the joint statement of no limits. I think that uh, Xi Jinping recognizes that um, uh, that was not a good phrase to use because, of course, there are limits. There are probably limits as to how much energy uh, that China will actually buy from Russia. And that's something maybe we can talk about later. Um, the fact that it's cheap does not mean that China wants to be overly dependent on any one supplier. China has always wanted to diversify. And indeed, one of the areas that I noted some differences between the two leaders was the level of enthusiasm for power of Siberia 2 pipeline. Um, and again, the joint statement talked about further research into expanding energy cooperation, but didn't mention that pipeline, whereas Putin had said they'd already reached an understanding um, on uh, building it. Um, it'd be interesting to talk to the Mongolians as to whether or not they have um, already finalized those uh, arrangements. So um, uh, those are just some of the uh, issues that I think were touched on during uh, the summit, but I think it was a very important one. And it is a reminder that this relationship is extremely important to both leaders and that I believe that trying to drive a wedge between them um, would be um, rather naive at this point. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I mean, all of you feel free to jump in, but Dimitri, maybe over to you from the view from Moscow and we can start with the visit. I think <clears> lots <throat> of people have rightly pointed out that it was uh, somewhat of like a slim pickings, not much came out of the meeting. Um, but there have been other views that have talked about really, though, the importance of the symbolism and that actually it, it was impactful. So there's kind of differing views on how people, I think, have interpreted that meeting. So I wonder what you think the view is from Russia and then like anything you want to say about, you know, Russia's role now in this partnership. Clearly, they don't have any alt real alternatives other than China. So my view is that they're kind of all in with China. But I wonder how you see that. Well, that's right. And uh, and. For Russia, it's clear that this is also a critical relationship, uh, given the lack of alternatives, and the and the summit was very important as a result uh, for, for the, but primarily as you as you pointed out for the symbolism, uh, because it creates a, a sort of a a global perception or at least an attempt to frame a a, a perception that these are two major powers working together uh, in concert uh, to <clears throat> limit U.S. hegemony in the world, as they put it, right? And that is, and that, that's politically very important. Uh, that said, there's a second aspect to that relationship, which is the, the, the sort of the empirical aspect, the concrete, uh, what do we get uh, out of this aspect? And in that realm, I think, China's been benefiting uh, more than than Russia uh, in 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 from the last you know from the developments of, of last year. Chinese, I think, uh, Chinese foreign policy in general. Uh, from again, this I'm not a China expert, but from an outside perspective, China, they seem very good at exploiting opportunities and getting the maximum benefit from whatever comes along. And they've uh, and they've and they've benefited economically from Russia's uh, cutting of ties uh, with Europe uh, and and reorientation to Asia uh, for for economic reasons. And you know, I mean, cheap energy is one aspect of it, uh, but also they've been uh, there's also a lot of uh, exports to Russia, right? And there's there's certainly benefits, uh, economic benefits from that. Uh, for Russia, uh, what Russia hasn't gotten, what it, which I think they desperately want, is more uh, military assistance, right? And and I think that that's an area where they're desperately in need of um, components, in particular, right? And China, the Chinese side, has not given any indication that they're going to go uh, further than they have, which is you know, some dual use components, uh, things like that, but nothing, uh, but no actual provision of, let's say, ammunition or something like that, something that would be critically important for, for Russia. And I think that that shows precisely, as, as, as Bonnie said, that shows the limits, right? It's, it, it, there is a limit here, and that, China, and that limit is that China doesn't want to break uh, 
you know, the, 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 the economic relations with the West, with Europe, with, with uh, the United States even, uh, but particularly with Europe, are too important for, for China. And I think that they're not willing to, uh, to, to go that far in the, in the tie with, with Russia. Yeah, so we're going to come back to that question of will they or won't they provide the military aid, because I want to get all of your views. But before we go to that really critical question, Yusuke, I want to turn to you um, and kind of get your view from Japan and how, like, what is the view from there about the relationship, why this is consequential, what we need to be paying attention to? Yes, um, thank you very much. Um, this invasion, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine had a huge impact on the Japanese society. I mean, this is really um, transforming our views towards Russia fundamentally. Um, before the invasion, the Abe administration was very eager to develop their relationship with Russia. And there was a certain you know, social support uh, to that. But after the invasion, that environment that atmosphere has totally changed. And um, Japan is pretty much, I, I would say 99% of the society is supportive of Ukraine. So this is a very new thing that is happening. Um, the whole nation is supporting one side in a conflict. So that will have uh, a considerable uh, influence towards uh, decision-making in the government level. And it will, pretty much uh, prevent the Japanese government uh, from trying to enhance their cooperation with Russia. Um, regarding China, I think, um, you know, economic-wise, China is such an important um, partner for Japan, but the, uh, the consideration of, of too much uh, dependence on China could really uh, deteriorate our national security. That kind of sense is widening uh, within uh, the Japanese government. And that's why you saw the, the fundamental uh, change within Japan's national security strategy last year, um, considering they depicted China as a strategic challenge. And that is a huge change in Japan's um, strategic uh, strategic thinking as well. So um, from the Japanese point of view, um, as it was depicted in the national security strategy, uh, which was introduced last year, they're basically saying Russia and, and China do not um, share universal values. And they're on the opposite side of the democratic camp. And Japan has never uh, indicated such clear uh, how do you say that, um, uh, separation of parties, but they're finally saying that um, Russia and China are on the opposite side. And, uh, but they've just introduced this new strategy. So we will see uh, what their actions will be from now on. But uh, from that point of view, I think Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow wasn't a surprise. It's just, you know, this is what it's, this is what it's about. And I think uh, the Japanese society will have to face the reality that we're, we need to uh, cope with this new strategic environment. Thank you very much. Yeah, Yusuke, one follow-up question, because I think the day after the Putin-Xi meeting, your prime minister was in Kiev. Yes. That was, right? <laughs> that was really remarkable. Uh, yes. I, I don't think that was intentional. I think okay. that he was um, planning to visit uh, Ukraine, but it had to be in a very um, secretive manner. But, uh, but it was a coincidence. And um, for people who it don't really was Putin, it was really symbolic. I think many, you know, the ambassador, the American ambassador to Tokyo said, well, you know, Xi Jinping is... Uh, visiting, uh, I forgot what he said, but basically she went to the bad guys and Kishida went to the good guys. And 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 I don't think that was the intention, but it, it was very symbolic that uh, both the leader in China and Japan went to the different sides. And I think that will also have an impact uh, towards our image of um, what kind of world we're living in. Yeah, I thought it was, not knowing it was coincidence, I thought it was a really a remarkable symbol. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, Richards, I want to, um, you know, one of the, when, when in the work we've done on the Russia-China relationship, kind of when we've, as we've tried to articulate why it's consequential for the United States and its allies, the military relationship is one that really rises to the top because it's, it's, it's quite a significant and deepening relationship. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you see the state of their defense cooperation um, in its recent trajectory. And then I think that'll bring us up to the current moment of will there or won't we? But just to just to give us a little bit of context. Um, right. Yeah. So it's putting everything in context. I like to look at the relationship and and, and, and you know at a lower at a, at the lower level. So your kind of question about what's military cooperation as opposed to overall cooperation is I think a more profitable approach because it varies on the Russia-China relationship it varies a lot by time um, by place and by issue area. So by time, it's clearly getting better and better, much better than many of us thought it could go a few years ago, certainly in the broad sweep of history when these countries uh, or their earlier versions were at war. It's a very much stronger relationship. Um, and so I can see whenever they meet why they say our relationship has never been better. Um, but when you drill down by place, it just varies a lot by location. So it's probably strongest still in Central Asia. You know, we, some people might have thought that with the breakup of the Soviet Union, then Central Asia would naturally become an arena of competition between the newly independent Russia and, and China and the states in between. But no, it's been actually one of their areas of strongest cooperation. Um, you know, they have shared interests in keeping pro-friendly governance of power, limiting extremism, keeping the US and Iran and other roles modest and so on. Um, I think East Asia has become increasingly important. And during the Cold War, they were at variance. The Chinese were often uh, seemed to tilt towards Tokyo and it's with Russia over the Northern territories. And, um, and, 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 and meanwhile, the Russians were not very supportive of Chinese claims regarding the South China Sea or India or so on. But, that's moved much closer and that they no longer advertise their differences and sometimes make statements supporting that. And that's where many of their exercises have occurred. Um, but, and then the Arctic appears to be me to be an emerging area cooperation, which we can get into. But in other places of the world, um, South America, Africa, even the Middle East and Europe, even though their policies are similar, there's not a lot of active cooperation on the ground still. And then my functional area, um, this is very much a top-down project, so it's very much driven by the two governments. So the societal connections have been very weak, even though each year the Russians and Chinese announce new, this will be the year of Russia and China and so on, try and drum up popular support. Until recently, the elites still prefer to send their children to study in the U.S. and Europe and learn English, writing each other's languages. That, that may change given developments over the past year, but it's still pretty much a, a top-down project in particular. Putin and Xi are very supportive of this relationship, very committed to it. Um, but in, in the economic level, it's been lagging. Um, and we even saw this recent summit. There was a lot of expectation to be announcements, finally, of a new pipeline. But as Bonnie said, it, it just didn't materialize completely. And that's been what we've seen a lot of memorandums of understanding and announcements of intent, but very few projects still, particularly given some of the natural compatibility between the two countries and mutual needs. The military realm, though, we have seen a lot of cooperation. Um, I, I put it into sort of three baskets. So um, there's one basket where they, you know, they, they meet frequently, they go to each other's Olympics, they go to each other's military conferences. Dmitry and I have seen them. And when we used to attend the Moscow Security Conference, the Chinese contingent was getting larger and larger with each year. Um, and they have these joint statements, you know, before it was very much against U.S. missile defenses. They put forth a joint Korea Peninsula Peace Plan. Lately, they've been attacking AUKUS and, and so on. Um, and that's, that's one part of the relationship. More concretely, you've seen this very uh, extensive and expanding exercise program. They used to just have one land exercise every couple of years. Uh, often with other groups, but now you've got pretty much one each year and the Chinese, yeah. since uh, I think it was 2018, the Chinese have been sending their forces to the annual Russia strategic exercise, um, except when it was 
held in the West when they prudently decided to keep PLA tanks out of Belarus. And, and so they made up a new strategic exercise in China. But you've seen in NATO exercises, they hold at least two a year with themselves, one in East Asia and one somewhere else. And now they've got new partners. They've recently held uh, trilateral drills with South Africa and with Iran. Um, you've got joint strategic aviation patrols, joint strategic uh, na na joint naval patrols. Um, so that's pretty extensive. We, we still don't quite understand how important that is in terms of what skills they're learning, interoperability, how far they're fusing whatever they learn to the non-participating units and so on. Um, but then, and this brings us back to the question you raised, the, the third tier is this, the, the, the defense industrial cooperation, the military technical cooperation, as the Russians call it, in which in, at the end of the Cold War, it was very convenient. Russia had all these surplus Soviet weapons, didn't know what to do with and couldn't afford to keep. And at the same time, because of Tiananmen Square, China was now not able to easily get Western weapons. So China naturally just bought a lot of the surplus weapons the Soviets uh, left Russia. But as China's defense industries improved, they, they they can make their own Soviet-type weapons. So this is constantly, every few years, Russia has to ratchet up to kind of aid the level of sophisticated weapons they're, they're giving. So they, the Russian patterns just need to hesitate, worry about intellectual property theft, worry about the implications, but eventually give in and, and sell the weapons. We've seen S-400 sales, SU-35 sales most recently, and there are others probably in the pipeline. And now we're looking at what the, how that might evolve. The, what they want to do is do joint research, development, production, and sale of, of systems. And that's that's been and the, a lot of a lot of plans announced for joint helicopters and aircraft. It's, and it's difficult to see much progress there, perhaps because of COVID or the Ukraine war. But that's certainly a logical area if they can make their own weapons, use them for their own forces, sell them to Pakistan, and so on. Um, and then, but then the question we're wondering about is the reverse flow. How many weapons Russia can get from China? How much will China sell given the current conditions? Um, and so that, that's a, you know, something that could have a big impact long term, even if, as Dmitry is right, we won't see it during the war itself. Just uh, maybe just add a couple of things on, on this. Uh, so uh, at CNA, we just um, completed a report on uh, Russian-Chinese military cooperation that isn't publicly available yet, but should be should be relatively soon. Uh, but uh, one thing that really jumped out is that, uh, Richard, I totally agree with everything Richard said. Uh, the one thing I would add is that there, there, there's um, variation over time in these three baskets, uh, or at least in the two practical baskets. I think the, the visits have been increasing over time, and that, that's pretty pretty clear. Uh, but what we saw is a very rapid growth in, particularly in exercises, from about 2012 to 2019. And then it's been kind of stagnant. And you could say maybe that's because of COVID, that's because, of, and then the war. Uh, but nonetheless, what we've seen is uh, there was a peak in 2019 of seven joint exercises. Uh, uh, in in uh, that year, and since then, it's it's been lower than that. It's been around, um, you know. Well, in twenty twenty, there were just two, and then five, four, and five. Subsequent years, so it's been lower, and there hasn't been uh, any expansion in terms of region, as as Richard pointed out, and uh, or uh, or other kinds of expansion. So it's kind of plateaued uh, over the last three years, and we'll see what happens, you know, down the road. It could be. It could be an exception. It could be just because of these events of recent years, or it could be that it's kind of reached a steady state and there isn't going to be more progress. And you see kind of the same thing with the arms sales. Uh, uh, there was there were various kind of uh, peaks and valleys in terms of Russian arms sales to China. The most recent peak was after 2014, uh, when uh, I think that uh, there was there was a decision made in Moscow that they had no, really no choice but to sell uh, to to make uh, to build a closer relationship with China and therefore sell some of the advanced weapons that they had uh, refused to sell previously, uh, but nothing much has come since then, and China is increasingly uh, uh, able to produce uh, just about everything on its own, so it doesn't need Russian weapons the way it used to, and so. Joint production is 
kind of the the likely path for the future. But as Richard said, we're just not seeing a lot of concrete uh, results from that at this point. There's talk and there's various plans. <clears throat> it's it's a bit of a it it it's not it, it, I, I, what I'm what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sort of counter the view that this is an ever expanding, constantly expanding relationship. It's not. It goes through ups and downs. And right now it's in more of a plateau than an, than an upswing for, from my point of view. Okay, Bonnie, do you agree? And it, just to kind of complete Richard's question, which got us right up to the point, obviously Russia's hoping that they will be a net beneficiary of this military cooperation in particular needs on ammunition and other things. So the question is, will they do it? You know, what do you think is the prospect? We've heard the very vocal warnings from the U.S. administration that China is at least contemplating providing the lethal aid. Um, and so what do you make of those warnings? Well, I am not, um, of course, a, a close observer of the military relationship as Dimitri and, and Richard are, but I will say that I think that COVID had an enormous impact on uh, PLA training schedules, uh, for example, uh, and of course, military diplomacy. So I would put a placeholder there before you draw conclusions about the significance of what transpired in the last few years in terms of exercises. So we'll have to see what 2023 and 2024 look like. Um, we do know that, uh, I think it was about five years ago, uh, that the Russians and Chinese had agreed to cooperate in uh, early warning radar. Uh, so uh, at, 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 at some point, um, I think perhaps we will see something there. And I wouldn't rule out that even when Xi Jinping was in Moscow, uh, that there was discussion about future forms of military cooperation that we just don't know about yet, um, whether that is joint production or military sales or other things. As far as the provision of lethal aid, my view is that uh, it is true that China does not want to see Russia be utterly defeated in this war. Uh, I think that although there are some benefits from having Russia as a junior partner, as many people say. Um, I don't think that a, a, a severely weakened Russia is what Xi Jinping wants to see. In fact, a stronger Russia is really more in China's interest if uh, Russia is going to be a partner in trying to revise the international order and weaken U.S. Uh, influence, as I said earlier. So although people talk about all of these ways that, uh, that, that China could uh, use leverage that it is building now, uh, that it could cash in later on, I don't see any evidence of that yet. So keep watching. Um, there is some uh, evidence in the joint statement of possibly increased cooperation in media, which I would call, um, you know, inf information, disinformation operations. Uh, maybe we'll see more there. Uh, and that would benefit China potentially. It would also benefit Russia. But there may be some Chinese, uh, um, uh, greater Chinese interest in, in, in the Arctic um, and, and using its leverage that it has over Russia in that area. But I don't think that the Chinese will provide lethal aid. Um, I think that the, the <clears throat> reasons why they haven't done so still uh, are, are still valid, uh, that the Chinese do not want to completely use Europe, lose Europe, sorry. They see Europe as, of course, a potential uh, a pole in a multipolar world. They continue to play up the concept of strategic autonomy. And of course, French President Macron will be going to Beijing soon. So we will hear more about that from the Chinese. Uh, I think that this is, uh, Europe's just very important and they recognize the damage that has been done to China's relationship with Europe, beginning of course with um, the, the imposition of sanctions, uh, first by the EU and then by China, but more importantly, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This has just been a huge wake up call for Europe. And so the provision of lethal aid would almost sort of put the nail in the, in, in the coffin, right? I mean, I think that uh, the, the, this would deal a, a very severe blow to China's relationship with Europe. And um, 
Secondly is, of course, uh, the sanctions on Chinese companies. And I think that uh, from what I've heard from the Chinese, that this is something they hope to avoid. Uh, so there's many ways that they can provide support to Russia short of taking measures that would trigger sanctions. Uh, and uh, so there's aid that, that or, or Chinese um, uh, uh, weapons of sorts, components, um, at outdated uh, grenades that we've seen uh, uh, pictures of on, on, on Twitter that are making their way through third countries and the Chinese government probably has no role in that. So we should be careful of what conclusions we draw. But what we're really concerned about is, is large quantities of munitions <coughs> made by Chinese private companies. They come from state-owned companies. The Chinese government knows what's going on with state-owned companies. And I think that that is a line that China will not be willing to cross. Yeah, Jim, you're being quiet. I think you're having too much fun in Paris now and, and you're tired, but I'll, you can jump in in a second. But jo Bonnie, um, one follow-up question and then Yusuke, I'm really curious on your take on this lethal aid question. But Bonnie, is it would Beijing see it um, as desirable to help Russia draw out the war? Like how much is it in China's interest to uh, facilitate Russia's ability to fight a protracted war, to, to see this carry on, to provide the munitions and other things that Russia might need to draw this out over the long term. Is that is is that desirable from Beijing's perspective? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I, 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 I think that the Chinese uh, attention, growing attention to this issue, as we saw in the 12 point uh, um, a position paper that they that they released, uh, at, at, to me really suggests that they they are seeing some negative impacts of the war on Chinese interests. And for example, uh, countries in the global south are very unhappy about the shortage of food. Uh, because of the war in Ukraine. And so they're blaming the Chinese for their challenges in dealing with food insecurity. As a result, the Chinese are saying, this is the fault of the US and NATO. Really, it's not China's fault. But why are they doing that? Because they don't want to share that, that blame. They want to make sure they put that, that burden on, uh, on other countries. So I think that there are negative impacts uh, of the war. Um, and uh, likely Europe will keep calling for Xi Jinping to talk to Zelensky to maybe play a role in, in uh, even mediating. Uh, this is something we not only hear from some European leaders like Macron, but we've also heard from Brazilian President Lula, who was supposed to visit Beijing, I think, this week and uh, postponed his visit. Uh, so I don't think that the Chinese want to hear this growing cry for China to play a substantial role in trying to end the war. Uh, so I, 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 I think ultimately they don't want to see a complete Russian defeat um, and they don't want the war to drag on forever. That's, that's my view. I think that they would like to see a negotiated solution that protects Russia's sort of vital interests. Yeah. Yusuke, what do you think about the lethal aid question? Do you think yes, China well, I basically I basically agree with Bonnie's assessment. Um, however, I'm not quite sure how uh, the communist leaders in China are uh, evaluating uh, evaluating EU's position. I mean, yes, uh, EU is taking a tougher stance, uh, a tougher posture towards China compared to, you know, uh, before uh, the inv Russian invasion in Ukraine started. However, I mean, it was very symbolic. Uh, was it last last November, last October? No, last November, um, uh, Chancellor Scholz of Germany visited Beijing and pretty much um, uh, celebrated uh, Xi Jinping's uh, third term as uh, General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. And it kind of that draw you know wide criticism within EU however it it really showed it really was symbolic showing the situation what was going on in EU so given the situation that they can't maintain their normal economic relations with Russia they can't afford um, of giving up their economic relations with China so 
you know, Germany is, is the heart of European e economy and the chancellor of Germany goes to Beijing under that kind of situation, which kind of gives support to uh, the communist regime. So that might have uh, gave confidence to Xi Jinping that, that Europe might not be able to be that tough on them. So um, I'm not quite sure, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's, it's not quite clear, but um, I think that, that gesture of the German chancellor visiting Beijing at that timing may have given a wrong message to Xi Jinping. And about uh, military aid, um, it, 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 I think it, 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 how would I say it? it it's, 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 it's a difficult question because what happens if China decides to export massive amount of commercial drones to Russia and saying this is you know commercial use, but they might go ahead and use it in combat. And we will criticize them by saying, you know, we didn't have any intention that the Russians would use this in combat, but they can do that. And there are many ways. I mean, we were opposing sanctions in North Korea. Look what China is doing. You know, they're, you know, uh, maintaining trade and communication behind the scenes. So, so China has its way of, you know, doing its own business. So um, it's, it's hard to say. And, and I'm not quite sure whether, you know, Europe will be the key from preventing them from actually supporting Russia. Yeah, Yusuke, one follow-up question, and then we'd like to welcome Jim Townsend to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Yusuke, how was China's peace plan um, received in, in Japan? What was the reaction when they came out with this peace plan? Um, I, I guess it wasn't that positive. I think, um, Although, as Bonnie mentioned, they do not want Russia to fail and they, they, they do not want a weak Russia. Um, so they are, you know, maintaining their trade. They're actually, you know, expanding their trade with Russia, but they do not want to, to have the same kind of label that China is an ag aggressive uh, nation. So, uh, um, so I think, you know, the going to Russia uh, was, was an act of, trying to uh, appeal to the international community that they are not an aggressive state that, you know, they do consider, uh, they do, uh, what? Uh, Be the responsible global actor. Yes, 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 exactly. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I think that was the kind of gesture they were trying to show by, uh, you know, by sending Xi Jinping or, you know, Xi Jinping visiting Moscow. Thank you very much. Then we've well, been waiting for your, you, you must have a really good question by now. You know, I, I had about five questions and they've all been answered and I've been just scrambling uh, each time to come up with another one and then someone else hits it out of the park. So, but, but, but there is something just, this is a very simple question. I, I did, did, um, did Putin have a good meeting? Do you think, do you think he left uh, the meeting and the ceremonies and the clinking of glasses and feeling that he had a good meeting with uh Z, or do you think he came away feeling that he didn't get a whole lot from it? That Z arrived with a whole different narrative uh, than what Putin wanted him to have. Z arrived as a peacemaker. Z arrived, and it almost sounded like as they went through the the day or so of meetings that that Russia was really kind of a, a the junior partner. You know, Bonnie, as, as we were saying. I mean, at the end of the day. Um, do you think Putin came away saying that was a good meeting or do you think he felt he really came up short? There wasn't a lot that he got out of this himself in terms of in terms of assistance or in terms of of, of the appearance of of uh, Putin being an equal to Z and their their partners together, et cetera. I mean, I'm wondering what the what the feeling was when there was wheels up for Z and he was flying out to Beijing. Did, did Putin go back to the Kremlin and go, God, you know, I didn't get a whole lot of that out of this. Dimitri, you want to jump on that one? Sure. Um, so, you know, trying to read Putin's mind is uh, not uh, necessarily a fruitful endeavor. Um, you know, so I all I can do is give you my take, which is that if I were Putin, I would be disappointed. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, whether he actually is disappointed, I don't know. I don't, I mean, uh, I've, long ago stopped thinking of him as a rational actor so uh uh in any you know meaningful uh <laughs> definition of rationality um so uh 
uh, I mean, the symbolic, like, uh, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, right? The symbolic aspects are, uh, has a great deal of symbolic. That's good from, uh, from the Russian point of view. Uh, the, uh, uh, on the other hand, practically, I don't think they got much out of it. So what's the balance between those two for Putin? I don't know. I don't know. So we have a great question from the audience from Rima, who's asking about um, the nuclear uh, weapons announcement. So Rima asks, immediately after the Russia-China summit, Russia moves nuclear weapons into Belarus or agrees to, 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 to complete the storage facility. China has been rather vocal about MPT adherence and the movement of nuclear material into a non-treaty country. Shouldn't China feel vexed and openly express its vexation with Russia's move? Um, Richard, how did you interpret Putin's announcement, which totally contradicted the joint statement that they signed right after the meeting, which talked about not uh, having nuclear weapons abroad? Um, how, how do we interpret that? Yeah, bringing back the, the previous question about how Putin saw the whole visit, you know, he, he didn't give everything he wanted, but he didn't have to really give a lot either. So unlike in the Samarkand SEO summit last fall, he didn't have to apologize to putting Xi in a difficult position. Um, you know, he got a lot of joint statement and joint publications of, of op-eds in each other's papers, reaffirmed some common principles. But as you point out, one of those principles was opposition to uh, NATO nuclear sharing. You know, he was, has nuclear weapons in NATO countries, and they were trying to put the AUKUS trilateral uh, military-industrial uh, partnership in, in the same category, saying it was violating proliferation norms. So it was kind of odd after that ended that we, you know, then we we heard this announcement that that the Russians intend to go ahead with constructing the site and. And, and citing the NATO example, um, but the Chinese and you know Russians have, have refrained from criticizing each other on many things. So I doubt we'll see a China criticism of this overtly. Um, the one positive element of the Chinese peace principles, I wouldn't really call it a plan, was it talked a lot about need to make sure that nuclear facilities are not threatened during wartime and and so on. That was perhaps an implicit criticism of Russia. So China clearly would like it to limit nuclear proliferation, would like to ensure the security of nuclear energy facilities since they're getting their major nuclear exporter. But at this point, given the closeness relationship, given how it looks like Russia's going to help China expand its nuclear forces by helping them get more uh, nuclear uranium fuel so that they can use for reprocessing, which has been a major limit on China's ability to produce fissile material it needs to build up nuclear expansion. I think China is just going to let it go or blame NATO and, and so on. Yeah, Bonnie, what do you think? So I think that this is a significant area of difference between uh, Xi Jinping and Putin. I agree with Richard, the Chinese are not going to call out the Russians. Uh, there's no reason why they would say anything publicly to criticize him. But this is the one issue that the Europeans have, of course, uh, reached out to China on. And uh, Xi Jinping did come out in his meeting with Olaf Scholz for the first time and, and say that, you know, nuclear weapons should not be used. A restatement of China's position. He didn't mention Russia, but we all know um, that that was the, a signal that uh, China was willing to do some small thing uh, to imply that Russia should not use nuclear weapons to help strengthen ties with Europe. So to me, it is, um, you can't miss the fact, as you said, Andrea, that the joint statement says very explicitly that nuclear weapons should not be deployed in third countries. And then within what, three days, Putin comes out and says, I'm deploying TAC nukes um, in Belarus. And so I think that this is not something that Xi Jinping welcomes. Uh, I think that he will not want to see more pressure coming from Europe to say more um, on the nuclear question because he said his piece, right? I don't think he wants to say anything, as I, as I said earlier, that's explicitly critical of Russia. But I 
think that with the flow of European leaders now going to Beijing, we have the Spanish president as well, um, and there will be others, there's going to be more pressure on China to intervene on this issue. And the Chinese, in terms of their own interest, do not want to see nuclear weapons used on the battlefield in Ukraine. So it's it's a question of pressure being put on Xi Jinping and then potentially the, the way that nuclear signaling is being used and the potential for actual nuclear use. I don't think that this serves Chinese interests. Yeah, I agree. Did you want to jump in? Yeah, just add very briefly that, you know, the whole move, right, like separate from the Russia-China angle, the, the announcement, Putin's announcement, right, is a bit, it doesn't make sense, right? Like, we'll see, we'll see what actually happens, you know, uh, nothing's been done, right? It's an announcement saying we're going to complete a facility, and then at some point we might do something there. Because they have uh, very similar storage facilities very close to the Belarus border, right? It's not like this is a major... Um, uh, uh, strategic advantage of some kind or, or, or something like that. So, so I think, you know, to bring back to the Russia, China, I think that n certainly China doesn't need to do anything until something actually happens, right? Like the, this is some announcement about something that might come in the future. Well, if it does, there'll be protests from the Europeans and the Chinese might be under some pressure to kind of restate something. But until that point, there's no need to do anything. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, I want to spend the remaining time that we have kind of trying to identify, articulate the implications of the relationship. And we have a question um, from our an audience member from Rick also, who's asking, you know, he his question says, during the Cold War, we panicked over the alignment of two powerful communist states completely overlooking the dish, the differing national interests that divided them. Any indication that we may be panicking again? And I, I mean, it gets to this issue of like, what, what is this? What, what are the actual implications for the U.S.? We don't want to uh, incorrectly overstate the significance of the relationship and then change our behavior accordingly. So, if you're a U.S. policymaker, European, or in the Indo-Pacific, what about the relationship is so concerning? Um, and I wonder, you know, if if Richard and and Dimitri, you want to jump in on the military side and kind of articulate for us why this matters. Well, you, you really do have to drill down. Um, so it matters in some places, in some areas. And the question is right. There's some people who say this is a new, you know, alignment of authoritarian powers trying to over, uh, challenge democracies, replace them. And there are others who dismiss this relationship, marriage of convenience, a lot of rhetoric, not much substance. But I mean, neither of those are, are, are correct for everything. So I think it's important to drill down. And so economics, as we had a question about de-dollarization, and we saw some movement towards this uh, at the summit. And interestingly, Putin has given up on trying to make the ruble uh, a, a major you know, substitute currency for the dollar and the euro and so on. And he said, <clears throat> Russia is now going to try and promote the yuan as, as it's for trade and with developing countries. And so that that's certainly a a challenge to a core pillar of U.S. strength and the, the, the strength of the dollar. Um, in terms of military, uh, it's a bit up in the air. I would say that you know certainly the weapons that Russia provided earlier and the technology earlier to the PLA was very important. I think it helped them fill in a lot of gaps and develop a naval aviation component and missile, robust missile facilities. As Dmitry said, now they can produce a lot of this themselves, but there's still probably some things they would want to learn more about through exercises or technology transfer, uh, particularly submarine warfare, anti-submarine warfare, how to make their, conceal their subs better. Um, Bonnie mentioned the early warning um, announcement, well, missile early warning, we'll, we'll see how that goes. So there are some areas which still can, can hurt the U.S. Um, and then, you know, more more generally, as we're seeing now, this whenever one, we're in a confrontation with one and one, as in Russia over Ukraine, we have to worry about what the other could do to, you know, interfere or how we can get their support. So it gives them leverage. So it certainly complicates diplomacy, complicates military planning. And I think the most serious implication is going to be in the realms of arms control. As, as long as China keeps on building up its nuclear forces, and as long as Russia is not going to do anything 
to help to help limit that or even engage on arms control, it's really forcing the U.S. to confront the question of how much is enough. Can we continue to rely on the the nuclear force we adopted a decade ago sufficient to um, respond to a Russian attack or a Chinese attack or anything else? If China keeps on building up, it gets much more complicated. You have to worry about if you get into a confrontation with one, how do you, what happens, what the other does after the initial exchange and so on. So certainly in some areas, it's becoming a big problem. Yusuke, what does that look like from Japan too? I mean, I think I mean, Richard raised a lot of important points about like the submarine fighting and anti-ship missiles. And there are things that Russia can help China improve its capabilities in the Indo so from your perspective, what are the most concerning um, dimensions of this partnership? Um, thank you. Um, I think we need to um, understand this issue from a broader aspect. Um, my understanding is that the situation we're facing with Russia and China, this is a side effect of economic interdependence or economic globalization. We knew these countries were autocratic state, yet we went ahead and enhanced our economic um, relationship with these two countries. As I always say to my students, China didn't rise by itself. The United States and Japan raised this country and we supported China based on the understanding that this country will democratize. But now we know it's not going to uh, democratized. So um, this is a situation, this is an outcome of both of our countries, China policy. And now this country is find, trying to find buddies or allies to support their autocratic system. Um, so trying to meet this challenge by military means, I think there's a limit to that. Um, we really have to think about our economic ties with these countries. And if we don't uh, uh, look into that uh, area, I think they will continue to utilize their economic ties with uh, the United States, EU, and Japan, and uh, translate that into military power. So uh, this is a fundamental change that we really have to rethink our way of doing trade uh, with other countries, really not thinking about their political system. Yeah, Dimitri, uh, like two questions for you, because one scenario in which Russian support for China becomes problematic is if there is a, uh, a conflict between the U.S. and China in the Indo-Pacific. And I, you know, I think I understand that Russia probably wouldn't uh, consider or China would not want Russia to be involved in that in the immediate stages. But if it were a protracted conflict, are there things that Russia could do to help China um, in that scenario? Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, so one one thing I think that we should make clear is that the level of interoperability between the Russian and Chinese militaries is not very high. Uh, it, it's it's improving, but it's still you know it depends. You know, if you if you're thinking about basis of comparison by you know compared to let's say uh, the U.S. and NATO allies, it's just in a different, completely different league. Uh, so uh, so that's. Uh, that kind of limits a little bit how much they can do together. But on the other hand, what they could do, and it depends a lot on what the, you know, where the Russia-NATO conflict is, right, at that point. Uh, but there is a possibility of uh, where the, the U.S. has to, uh, you know, can't focus, basically, right? It can't just focus on China because Russia is still a threat. Russia could be... Uh, uh, you know, potentially making moves, uh, whether it's in Ukraine or somewhere else, where U.S. essentially, you know, the the nightmare for the U.S. is having to to fight on two fronts, and that doesn't, I mean, and that doesn't mean active fighting. That could just mean that a lot of a set of the forces has to be held in reserve uh, because of the possibility that there might be a, a you know some some kind of conflict or some kind of Russian opportunistic move somewhere else, right? So, so I think that's that's really where Russia can help the most in the, in the event of such a, uh, a conflict is just pinning some set of NATO, U.S. and, and NATO ally forces elsewhere, and that doesn't have to be in Asia at all. 
Yeah, but all, but I guess you could also imagine, I mean, especially like you said, it matters where Russia is in with the war it's mm-hmm. fighting in Ukraine. But if it were after that, I mean, Russia's now mobilized its defense industry. And so you wonder if whether or not through the provision of weapons to China or other things, it could enable China to fight a longer war at some point. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, it depends on the time frame, right? Because the, the first thing that's the Russia's going to, when the, when the war with Ukraine ends, uh, the first thing Russia's going to have to do is rebuild its own ground forces, right? Uh, and that's going to take, uh, I've seen various estimates, but, you know, there's some, you know, up to a decade uh, to do that. So now they could shortchange their own forces and shift to China, of course, but their top priority is going, we've already seen certain uh, uh, arms sales contracts going unfilled uh, on the Russian side because they've redirected their defense industry to their own needs. So that that's going to, I think, continue for some time. Bonnie, I want to give you the last word, but like just to hear your views on why this relationship matters, you know, and, and again, trying to be concrete. And so we're not overstating the challenge, but really helping focus policymakers' minds on why that why this matters. How, like, how do you think about that? Well, I do think it's important to right size the challenge. And as um, uh, there have been many uh, discussions, of course, in the United States, just about, <clears throat> sorry, how to evaluate uh, the set of challenges that China just poses, even without uh, Russia. And there's a lot of debate. Uh, We had uh, Representative Gallagher in the first uh, hearing in the Select Committee on China refer to uh, the China threat as existential. And that is being discussed by people, you know, is is it existential? How should we define that? And, And so it is important uh, to understand what China and Russia are doing together, what they could do together, and whether there's any way to influence that. And I, again, I don't mean drive a wedge, uh, but to signal that the consequences of cooperating in some areas would be very, very costly. And I think we need to think about the range of things that they could do and then assess that likelihood. I'm more worried about the near term, which is more about the the peacetime cooperation about uh, undermining the the international order, working together at the United Nations, uh, China and Russia uh, work together to develop potential um, positions on space, cyber, uh, you know, freedom of information, uh, human rights, things like that. So there's a whole set of issues that relate to the UN. Uh, I worry that maybe China will try to encourage Russia to give them more support on Taiwan, which so far has been just rhetorical. Uh, but I would not like to see Russia step up in, in any way uh, that would be more harmful uh, to Taiwan, even suggesting that they might provide some rear support uh, in the event that China attacked Taiwan. Uh, but at the other end of the spectrum, in the more sort of extreme, if we really want to be worried scenario and think about a po- possible uh, wartime cooperation, is the issue of uh, coordination of uh, nuclear strategy. This is something you know we haven't talked about, but I think that there are people who uh, are concerned that in the event of a war that the United States might have to have targets in both uh, China and Russia at the same time and have sufficient number of warheads uh, to be able to threaten both. And this is one of the reasons I think the Trump administration had reached out to both Russia and China, uh, asking for trilateral uh, discussions on arms control and arms reductions, um, that nuclear arms reductions, of course. Now, that that's not going to happen um, for a variety of reasons. But I think it signals that people are worried about that challenge going forward. So uh, we, we shouldn't overstate in the threat and and prepare for every possible outcome. But I do think we should assess the likelihood using evidence that we have in our intelligence community and uh, try to develop as much confidence level as possible in our assessments as to where China and Russia might work together, where it would be very consequential, and if so, how we might signal that moving into that area might have enormous consequences for Chinese interests so that we can deter them from doing so.
Well, it's a perfect place to end. Um, I want to thank you uh, for joining us. It's been a great conversation. I mean, there I, obviously this debate has evolved quite a lot over the last several years. And the war in Ukraine, um, I think, has really brought this back to the surface and made us all think very hard about the nature of this relationship. So I really appreciate all of your different perspectives on this. And I know it's a thing that we'll be focused on for some time to come. So Bonnie and Dimitri and Richard and um, Yusuke, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to all our Brussels Sprouts listeners as well. Um, and if you want to hear this conversation again, um, you can find it um, wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks so much, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.